You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's Black History Month. And this Black History Month, we're launching the Redacted History Book Club. And this month, we're reading The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. If you want to join the book club, first, you got to get the book. You can find purchase options in the show notes below. Second, take a picture or a screenshot when you get the book and tag us on your Instagram story at Redacted History underscore. There will also be a cash prize giveaway for members of the book club. On February 22nd, we'll be launching the official episode of The Book Club, so you don't want to miss that. We got a few weeks, so go get the book and get to reading. It's an easy read, I promise. Protect and serve. That is what we've always been told. But we Americans have learned over the last decade that that was a lie. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. Trayvon Martin was three months older than me. We were 17 when he lost his life at the hands of George Zimmerman. And I was 18 when the jury found Zimmerman not guilty. And I'm 27 as I sit here and record this podcast about yet another black man that lost his life. But my line of thinking is a lot different than it was 10 years ago. Ten years ago, I was not able to conceptualize the loss of Trayvon and what it meant, what it would mean for the next decade for the fight for racial equality in America, how Trayvon wasn't the first and would not be the last. I also didn't understand or know about how the justice that Trayvon didn't see was just one act in a long line of disappointments that make up the broken system that we live in. I could also not conceptualize how his killing and lack of justice reflected the dark and meek legacy of white supremacy in this nation. How Trayvon wasn't the first and absolutely would not be the last. Now, in regards to the Tyree Nichols case, I'm not going to go over the entire case or what happened, nor will I be showing the video or any sound bites of the video on any of my platforms. What I will say is that my head has been spinning constantly, revolving this murder for the last two weeks. The murder of Tyree Nichols turned from a whisper on the Internet to a full on siren in the span of two weeks. The uproar as the details came to the surface and perhaps what felt the darkest was the country physically preparing for the release of the body cam footage like we were waiting for the pre-sale tickets to a Marvel movie. It all felt so demoralizing, bleak, disheartening. Didn't we just do this almost three years ago? Yeah, the summer of George Floyd was almost three years ago where we watched a man die on a cell phone recording, or should I say murdered, on a cell phone recording. The entire world watched George take his last breath 
as we were firmly in the clutches of a global pandemic, the likes we hadn't seen since 1918. The same thing I felt when I watched in 2012 with Trayvon and in 2014 with Eric Garner and in 2015 with Sandra Bland and in 2016 with Philando Castile and the list goes on and on and on and on. Tyree Nichols was a father. He was a son, a brother, a nephew, a grandson, a skateboarder, a photographer, a human being, and he was 29 years old. It is clear that the police were never here to protect us. However, they are protecting one thing, the institution of white supremacy, because every bully needs a bodyguard. Let's talk about the history of policing in the United States. Where did police come from? Who conjured up the grand idea of having an armed militia comprised of poorly trained citizens? Well, little do most people know, but policing as a practice in the United States isn't a relic or antiquated or an old concept. Policing in America is new, relatively speaking. Let's hop in a time machine and go back to colonial America, the 1600s and the 1700s. Policing in this time period was super informal. It wasn't even called policing yet. You had folks who would basically volunteer to keep watch at night or keep the peace when things were getting stirred up or someone was too drunk and there was order to be kept. And yes, these positions were relegated for white men only. But these systems were never meant to last long term, nor were they ever built for any longevity anyway, because you were enlisting regular people with no training to work part time with no supervision or little supervision. A lot of people keeping watch would do a bad job or get drunk or distracted on the job. Once communities and cities started to grow, these Paul Blart night watchmen and their jobs became useless as cities were too big for one to two watchmen at a time. For instance, New York was one of the most quickly growing cities post-Revolutionary War, increasing from a population of 33,000 in 1790 to 150,000 in 1830. The first publicly funded, organized, full-time police force in America was created in 1838 in Boston. Boston was a large shipping and commercial hub with massive imports and exports, and there needed to be people to protect the monies and property. Insert police forces. This was in Boston, the North. If we traveled down South during the exact same time period, there was also a need for a police force to protect a vital part of the economy. Slavery. The first primary policing forces ever established in the South were created for the preservation of slavery and the property that were the enslaved black people. The first formal slave patrol was created in the Carolina colonies in 1704. And fast forwarding through the 1700s, we see the preservation of slavery throughout the South. And it was the reason for bigger forces and laws created to hunt down runaway slaves and bring them back to the plantations, a.k.a. the Fugitive Slave Act. 
the first Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1793 as part of the broader legislative package known as the Fugitive Slave Laws. These laws made it a federal crime to assist an escaped slave in avoiding capture, and it also gave slave owners the right to reclaim their property without a trial. This meant that even free African Americans were at risk of being captured and returned to slavery, as they could be accused of being fugitives without any legal recourse. With these quickly growing cities, there was a perception that crime rates and the unruly nature of people would only increase. In addition to all of this, we had rioting and slave revolts sweeping the East Coast at the turn of the 19th century. We went from Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia in 1831 to the sweep of riots in New York in 1834. There was massive thought that we need a police force in every single major city or society will crumble. We saw the military acting as the law of the land in the South during the Civil War and even afterwards during Reconstruction where the goal was no longer to preserve slavery but to maintain the order of Jim Crow. By the time we get to the late 1800s, we see the creation of police forces in all major U.S. cities, and the goal of these forces was to maintain segregation, fight back against labor unions being formed, and also police forces were fighting with their U.S. nationalism as their batons, combating immigrating Catholic, Irish, Italian, German, and Eastern European people. So, policing was never born out of anything positive. It was only meant to drive home the narrative of white U.S. supremacy. But how and why has the police evolved from part-time city watchmen working for free to armies of people with automatic machine guns tallying yearly budgets in the billions? Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply We've been saying defund the police for a few years now, and every time detractors will say, well, why would you want to take money away from the people meant to protect you? The answer is kind of simple. The investments don't have sufficient enough a return. The United States spends a collective $100 billion on policing and another $80 billion on incarceration, and this is money spent every single year. That's $100 billion on policing a year and $80 billion on incarceration a year. And a lot of the taxpayer money that funds these police officers actually goes towards funding police brutality. Around $230 million is spent per year on NYPD misconduct lawsuits alone. And are these budgets really worth it? Probably not. There have been numerous studies conducted that suggest that a lower presence of police actually reduces crimes. Laws and implementation such as New York City stop and frisk actually increase police presence and sour the relationships between officers and civilians. 
In his book, The End of Policing, Alex Vital points out how crucial it is to redirect resources from policing, courts and jails, to community centers and youth jobs. He notes how in 2014, the LA Youth Justice Coalition drafted a plan that redirected just 1% of the LA policing budget to community social programs for youth, which would generate over $100 million per year. However, nothing was put in place. Compared to peer countries, the U.S. spends very little on social programs, only 18.7% of its general budget, and a staggering 0.6% on benefits for family and children. What's more, Vital believes that departments are having to over-police in order to justify their sizes and budget. He finds this especially visible in Border Patrol, which, in the wake of a decline in border crossers, has focused its effort on seizing drugs, even though 80% of its arrests are of U.S. citizens. Yet, despite the lowering crime rates and forced validations of costs, police departments continue to see budget increases year after year. I have a theory that, well, it's not really a theory, but I have a theory that police forces have grown kind of like a parasite and parasites feed on a host. And the host is white supremacy. The host is the white dominating patriarchy structure enveloping society. And as long as that is ruling over society, the parasite will only grow. The corruption that we see in the policing system didn't just appear overnight in the 21st century. We saw wide-scale corruption in the policing system across the nation in the 19th century. The 19th century was the time in America where we saw politics turn into the beginnings of the machine we see it as today. Police offices across the nation were filled with political appointees, and you can imagine how this turned out in these respective offices. Because police officers worked alone or in small groups, there were ample opportunities to shake down peddlers and small businesses. Detectives allowed con men, pickpockets, and thieves to go about their business in return for a share of the proceeds. Captains often established regular payment schedules for houses of prostitution, depending upon the number of girls in the house and the rate charged by them. The monthly total for police protection ranged between $25 and $75 per house, plus $500 to open or reopen after being raided. Corrupt practices extended from the chief's office down to the patrol officer, and this was across the entire nation. In New York City, for example, Chief William Devery protected gambling dens and illegal prize fighting because his friend, Tim Sullivan, who was a major political figure on the Lower East Side, had interests in those areas. Police captains like Alexander Clubber Williams and Timothy Creedon acquired extensive wealth from protecting prostitutes, saloon keepers, and gamblers. Williams, a brutal officer, hence the nickname Clubber, was said to have a 53-foot yacht and residences in New York City and the Connecticut suburbs. Since a captain's salary was about $3,000 a year in the 1890s, Williams had to collect from illegal enterprises in order to maintain his investments. And I could go on and on and on finding and retelling anecdotes and stories and, and literature of police corruption and why police are the way that they are. But I'll probably save that for further episodes. But what can you take away from all of this? Police were never meant to protect and serve. Police were always meant to serve as a barrier and protector to the institution of white supremacy. 
the institution of slavery, the institution of capitalism, the institution of nationalism. In none of those categories does the best interest of a marginalized citizen even exist. Until next time. Yo, if you like this episode of the Redacted History Podcast, consider leaving a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening to. It really goes a long way. I truly appreciate it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.